0: Thank you. It's an honor to be with you, to be here in Philly. I, I will make a couple confessions. First, my wife's family is originally from Pittsburgh, but I hope you'll just let me speak this morning anyway. Uh, my, fin- my, uh, my boys are big Vince Papali fans, so they wanted me to tell you that this morning, that they've uh, got the DVD of uh, Invincible, and, they, and so they're learning. They're learning about the Eagles, so I appreciate it, uh, and it's an honor to be with you this morning. Now, before I go any further, I have to check with Joe. He said there's a clock out there. And if I don't find it, I'm just going on, okay? So I have to make sure I have some idea where that clock is. Because I'm, I'm looking out there, I don't see a clock, because you probably took it down for today. Oh, up way up there, like into the heavens. So if I'm looking, like, oh, Lord. Okay, got it. Now I'm good. Now I'm good. Sorry. Well, what an honor and a joy to be with you. You know, uh, we're going to talk about this morning uh, the issue of uh, the last days. And are we living in those last days? And Lord, open our eyes to understand what You're doing in this in this world of ours—a a world that seems a little crazier every single day when you look at the events that are happening uh, in the world right now. And as we put that into some context, um, I've had this privilege over those last few years. You know, I, I, let's let's put my cards on the table. Just let's just be honest, right up front. I, I was honest about Pittsburgh. Now I needed to be honest about—I'm a failed political consultant. That's actually my job. It was my job. I, I helped a lot of people lose their campaigns. <laughs> I, I was a, the deputy campaign manager for Steve Forbes in the 1996 and 2000 Republican presidential primaries. Uh, I helped him lose both of those campaigns. I was later uh, working for the former deputy prime minister of Israel, Natan Sharansky, who got so frustrated with politics that he just quit a few years ago altogether. He's out. He's, he's done. I worked for the former Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, who in the year 2000 hired me as a member of his comeback campaign team. Now, that was eight years ago, and I don't know if you follow Israeli politics. He has not yet come back, okay? (laughs) I was with him in his office about six weeks ago in Jerusalem. We spent about an hour together. Uh, He is way ahead in the polls currently. But I noticed in the course of that conversation, he didn't ask me to help him. And I think he might be right on that account. I, I, I just, I, that was not my gift. Uh, I, it was apparently not my calling. So I, I decided to go through political detox. I'm out. I'm clean. And uh, I still believe, <laughs> I do believe, you know, in the importance of the democratic process. And uh, But I, that I decided, you know what, this is just not where God has me. Um, and I the problem with that was, even with a name like Joel Rosenberg, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a dentist. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a stockbroker. I really didn't know what else to do with my life. I mean, I wrote speeches people didn't respond to, uh, editorials in the newspaper people didn't read. I-, I didn't know, what do you do with that? I mean, how do you? So I took my little loaves and fishes. I said, Lord, please. I mean, I, I, what failed political consultant, how does that advance your kingdom? And, um... And the Lord was very gracious, as he was with those who brought him a few loaves and fishes in the galley 2,000 years ago. And he took them and he didn't complain. He just took it and he blessed it and he broke it and he fed a lot of people with it. And so uh, in January of 2001, uh, my wife and I sat down and I said, Look, here, here's the deal. I've got to get out of politics. I'm out. I'm done but I want to do something with this writing. I wasn't even sure if I'd call it a skill, but it, it, it just is what it is. It's the only thing I have. Maybe I can just make things up for a living. And uh, I, I'd like to write a novel. And I pulled uh, my wife Lynn, and we have, we have four boys now. We had three at the time. Uh, the four now, Caleb, Jacob, Jonah, and Noah. Okay? Uh, 14, 11, nine and four almost four and you see that little gap there and that well you know jesus said in matthew 24 that he's not coming back again till the days of noah so we thought you know if we're holding him back in any way we we'd better have a noah so now there's a noah he's already he's you know he's almost four he's been to israel three times and uh but at the time we just had caleb jacob and jonah so i gathered them all together and i said all right here's the deal daddy wants to write a novel, a political thriller, a Tom Clancy-esque book that grabs your attention, pulls you in on an adventure story. And then, as the novel continues, uh, the spiritual temperature begins to rise. And maybe three-quarters of the way into the book, when hopefully you can't put it down, then one of the characters maybe could begin to share his or her faith in Jesus Christ with the others. And... Uh, Lane and the boys said, oh, that, that's a good idea. The kids were, the big question was, will that mean you'll stay home more? I said, yeah, I'll, give, I'll probably be home a lot more because uh, I've never written a novel. I don't know how to write a novel. And um, I don't have a story. So except for those fairly central elements <laughs> to writing novels, especially evangelistic thrillers, that's where we are. And so they all looked at me a little like, well, how are you planning to do this? Um, and not fail as spectacularly as you're doing in politics. No, they didn't actually say it that way. But I said, here's what we need to do. We need to pray Jeremiah 33, verse 3. Every night we're going to pray this as a family. Call to me, says the Lord, and I will answer you. And I will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. That is the perfect verse for daddy. I don't know how to write a novel, and I don't have a story to begin with. But if, this, if the Lord is in this in some way, that I think he is, but, you know, I've thought that before. But if, he, if he's in this, he will lead us. He will guide us. Uh, and he will accomplish something beyond what our little loaves and fishes would, we would think that we could, we could be a blessing. Well, the short version, some of you have read some of these novels and are a little bit of, uh, familiar, but the short version is the first novel that I ever wrote was called The Last Jihad. The first page of that novel puts you inside the cockpit of a jet plane that's been hijacked by radical Islamic terrorists and it's coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. Now, this was nine months before September 11th, 2001. I didn't have the exact scenario. There's a number of differences between what I was writing about fictionally and what actually happened. But in in the book, this kamikaze attack against the United States triggers a war between the United States and radical Islamic jihadists and eventually leads my fictional American president to war with Saddam Hussein over terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. I was literally finishing that book on the morning of September 11, 2001, at the home where Lynn and the boys and I were living at the time, 15 minutes away, from Washington-Dulles Airport, where at that moment, Flight 77 was being hijacked from our airport, turned around, flown over our house, and into the Pentagon. Now, I had not set out to write a novel about what was going to happen. I wasn't trying to predict what was going to happen. But that, that, that year, and those prayers, and that novel changed my life, and The Life life of My Wife and Boys, forever. Because by the time that novel was published in the fall of 2002, six months before the Iraq War happened, and therefore when the whole world, the whole country was engulfed in a major debate over whether we should go to war or not, suddenly the last jihad hit bookstores. Now, let me be clear. I told you I went through political detox. I'm not here to talk about uh, the partisan implications of the war that happened or the war that's continuing now. And I don't, I, I'm not, my point is not whether you believe we should have been there, shouldn't have been there. Just, I just want to give you some context that I wrote a novel. I made something up and something began to happen uh, that drew me into a conversation about what really is happening in our world. What really are the threats that we're facing? How are we supposed to handle those threats? And is the Lord's hand in this somewhere? Is there any hope in the midst of all the disasters that we're seeing coming out of the Middle East right now. That particular fall, I was invited on 160 radio and television shows. I had never been on television in my life. I'd been on a few, maybe a cable access show or something, but I I had hardly done any talk radio in my life. And suddenly, because of the events of the world, events in the novel, I'm being invited on shows saying, how could you have known... What was going to happen? And, of course, I said, well, I, I didn't know exactly, and I talked about the differences. But they'd say, well, what do you think is going to happen next? And, I, and we'd talk about that a little bit. And then uh, very invari- invariably, uh, shows, talk show hosts would say, now, your name's Rosenberg, right? I'd say, right. And they'd say, that's Jewish, right? I said, well, my father's side's Jewish. Mother's side's Gentile. But yes, Joel Rosenberg, you know, yes, Jewish, right? They said, but you've got these characters at the end of the last jihad. They're all talking about Jesus, aren't they? I said, yes, that's true. Well, what is that? You know, I had one guy in my hometown of Rochester, New York. uh, uh, He's a disc jockey, kind of morning talk show host named Brother Wheeze. And Brother Wheeze would say, now, dude, I don't understand what's going on here. I mean, come on, are you a Hebrew? I said, you mean like in National Hot Dog? He said... (laughs) He goes, no, I'm a heeb. Are you a heeb? I said, well, I'm Jewish. If that's what you're, t- yeah. Well, I, you got all these characters; they're all talking about Jesus, aren't they? I said, well, yes, but well, what is that? How can you? What are you a born again Christian? What are you an evangelical? You know, it's like the craziest thing you'd ever heard of. I said, yes, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe He's the Messiah. Well, how can that be? How can you be Jewish and believe in Jesus? I never heard of that. I said, well, you know, it is an interesting story. I. Don't think you have time for me to walk you through that right now. Oh no, he said. It's one thing to have a guy who writes fiction that comes true on my show. It's another thing to meet a Jew who believes in Jesus. This I gotta hear. Tell me your story, son. (laughs) Now, if that had been the only show that I'd gone through that process with, that would have been exciting enough. But show after show, day after day, week after week, month after month, 160 shows in less than 60 days. I had the privilege of talking about my faith in Jesus Christ and the relevance of the scriptures in both in my own life as well in in all of our lives to more than 20 million people in less than 60 days. This is the God that we serve. And this is the times that we live in. You know, Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 3 that the God we serve is able to do abundantly more than we can hope for, dream of, or imagine. And the question is, do you and I believe that? Do you and I believe that whatever skills or lack thereof that we have, that if we bring them to Jesus and we say, look, I'm not sure if I know how to do that much for you, but I want to take whatever little bit that I have, Lord. You take it. Would you bless it? Would you break it? Would you use it to feed people in your name? And I got to tell you, standing here as a witness to this, um, buckle up because you don't know what the Lord's going to do, but I suspect it's going to be abundantly more than you can hope for, dream of, or imagine. And i got to tell you, I have a pretty large imagination. It's the only thing I have. Uh, uh, and when I, t- you know, when I tell you that I, I, I didn't know how to write and I'm not, not necessarily that good, I'm not being self-deprecating. The Washington Post described my first novel as an act of terrorism against the reader's brain. Okay, so <laughs> I'm just trying to, you know, it's not Dickens, it's not Shakespeare. Don't get your hopes up. I'm just saying this is, this is the world that I live in now. But, the, what, but all of these novels, starting with the last jihad, leading right up to the current novel, which is called Dead Heat, they're all based on Bible prophecy. They're all based on looking at what the Bible says will happen in the last days and then saying, okay, Lord, here's what you say is going to happen. I believe it's going to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen, but let's just set these things out on a piece of paper. Here's what's going to happen. Now, Lord, is it possible this is going to happen in my lifetime? Is this possible it could happen soon? We don't know that for sure because Jesus said he's not going to tell us the day or hour. But he, when he was asked, hey, what are the general things we should be watching for, that he answered. And what's interesting to me about that is that what I did with this novel series, I said, okay, here's what we know will happen. Now let's back it up and, and, and let's look at how we can get from January 2001 what series of events might be plausible that could happen between January 01 and the, the, the events that the Bible describes will happen in the last days? That's, so it was really backing scriptures up. Saddam Hussein, not in the scriptures. Radical Islamic jihadists, not in the scriptures. Kamikazes, not in the scriptures. But there's a lot of things that are in the scriptures and that process. Now tonight, if you come back, um, I will be happy to answer your questions about uh, in more detail about those prophecies, and what are those? What were those prophecies? That, what do we know for sure? And how did I back them up to to get this trajectory of, of novels? But it wasn't just that first one, last jihad. The second one, the last days, opens with a, you're in a U.S. diplomatic convoy driving into Gaza as part of the peace process. When the convoy is suddenly attacked by terrorists, now six days before the last days hit bookstores in the fall of 2003, a U.S. diplomatic convoy heading into Gaza as part of the peace process, it was attacked by terrorists. Now, U.S. News and World Report then did a story describing me as a modern Nostradamus. And I said, look, I, you know, so now I'm on 150, 160 radio shows saying I'm not Nostradamus. I'm not a psychic. I'm not a clairvoyant. I don't call Miss Cleo in the middle of the night to get my plot ideas. You understand what I'm saying? They said, well, how are you doing this? All right, so I begin to walk, there, and what do you think is going to happen next? And I'd start talking about that, and they said, isn't your name Rosenberg? <laughs> and again, the opportunity just opened. The third novel, I'll just give you one more example. There's so many of them, but I'm just going to give you a little taste of this. The third novel is called The Ezekiel Option. A dictator begins to rise to power in Russia. Iran is feverishly trying to build, buy, or steal nuclear weapons. And then Russia and Iran begin to form a military alliance, a nuclear alliance, to, with a group of other countries to surround and attack Israel in the last days. Now, in that novel, on page 358, in case you want to look it up, my fictional Islamic character says, we're going to wipe Israel... Off the map. Five months after the Ezekiel option was published, the president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, said, We're going to wipe Israel off the map. Now you have to understand, Ahmadinejad was not the president of Iran when I wrote the book. I wrote it in 2004. He became the president of Iran on June 24th, 2005, the very day the Ezekiel option was published. In fact, I was on the Sean Hannity radio show that day, and Hannity had had me on for the last jihad, last days, and now had me on for the launch of this new book. And, he, and even though that moment was still five months off, Jihad had just been elected that day, threatening to uh, destroy Israel, not quite in the same language, uh, vowing to accelerate Iran's nuclear program, and vowing to accelerate Iran's relationship, alliance with Russia. And he had me on, he said, all right, now, Joel, all right, the first book, that was uncanny. The, the second book, that was a little eerie. But now this is downright spooky. I mean, don't write anything about me unless, you know, it's something good, because it could come true. That's where we are. And the fact that Christians are getting interested in this series and asking, okay, well, what, are, what is a plausible, what is a plausible trajectory of events that could happen between now and the return of Jesus? What is a plausible set of events that could happen between now and Ezekiel 38 and 39, what the Bible calls the War of Gog and Magog? That prophecy is about Russia having a dictator rise to power, forming an alliance with Iran, forming an alliance with Libya, and a group of other Middle Eastern countries to surround and attack Israel in the last days. Russia and Iran, however, regardless of what Ezekiel said, hasn't had an alliance like that in 2,500 years until today. Now they're building this relationship and people are asking questions. And it's not just us as followers of Jesus. Kind of curious, all right, Lord, when could these prophecies come true? But it's also true that the secular world is getting interested. All last week, I was on CNN headline news every single night, including on a one-hour special on uh, Friday night that was about, I guess it was the week before last, uh, that was about honest questions about the last days every single night we talked about what's going on geopolitically in the world and does it have a correlation to bible prophecy and then a one-hour special just glenn beck and myself talking about these issues now folks can i tell you when cnn headline news gets interested (laughs) in devoting that much time to the questions of the last days i think we're getting in a very interesting moment in history and it leads me to uh, some scriptures that I think are worth kind of getting into this morning, into the meat and potatoes. If you turn with me to Second Kings chapter six, the, what I want to talk about uh, in, in this context is, Lord, open our eyes that we can see what are you doing in this world? What is happening? And how do we live differently in the light of the fact that Jesus is coming back and his return may be, maybe, a lot sooner than most. People generally, and even those of us who are excited about his return, it might be sooner than we expect. Now, in Second Kings, chapter six, we're beginning in verse eight, it begins with the verse: "Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel." Now, Tivo that just for a second. The king of Aram, who's who's Aram? Who are the Arameans? Uh, this is the uh, the country that we now call Syria. So, Syria was planning to go to war against Israel. Planning to wipe Israel out. And some things don't change after thousands of years. Literally two weeks ago, just before I was getting up to give a sermon, uh, a story came out uh, that the president of Syria, Bashar Assad, was saying, we are preparing for war with Israel. They are, Syria is getting ready for war with Israel. Uh, Hezbollah, the terror group inside Lebanon, getting ready for war with Israel. Iran, definitely getting ready for war with Israel. Hamas, the radical Islamic jihad group inside the West Bank and Gaza, getting ready for war with Israel. The uh, Sudan getting ready for war with Israel. By the way, in the prophecy of Ezekiel 38, Russia forms an alliance not just with Iran and these other countries that I mentioned, but with Libya. Where was Vladimir Putin last month in Libya, signing a two and a half billion dollar arms deal? First Russian president in human history to visit Libya. Now, is that proof that the prophecy is going to come true in our lifetime or soon? No, no, it's not proof. But it's got a lot of heads turning. It's got CNN asking me on live international television, do you think Putin is the character Gog from Ezekiel 38? Can you imagine a question like that? I mean, I was a Gog just hearing the question. Did you just ask me if Putin is Gog? I mean, most people in the world have not even heard of Gog. That's the Russian dictator from Ezekiel 38. The fact that you're asking me that question, my answer was, I'll tell you tonight. No, no, that one, we don't know yet. I said that Putin is Gog-esque, but I don't know we can say that he's Gog quite yet. But we've got a situation where the world is getting ready. The, The Middle East world is getting ready to attack Israel. And this is the situation in Second Kings chapter 6. Now, the king of Aram, the king of Syria, was warring against Israel. And he counseled with his servants, saying, Hey, look, in such and such place, I'll put my base camp so then we can use that to attack Israel. Verse 9. Elisha, the man of God, sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you don't p- p- pass this particular place, for the Syrians are coming down there. So the king of Israel... Sent to the place about which the man of God had told him, thus he warned him, so that the king of Israel guarded himself there more than once or twice. Basically, God, who is all seeing, all knowing, doesn't need spy satellites. He doesn't need electronics eavesdropping. He doesn't need uh, human intelligence. He can see this, and if he decides to tell a prophet hey, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. Now, don't mistake what I'm doing. I'm not coming up with new prophecy, okay? Let's just be clear. I'm looking at the prophecies and I'm saying, here's what the God says will happen. So it will happen. I'm just asking, what's a plausible way to get from here to there? But this, this is actual prophecy. This is God saying to Elisha, the Syrians are massing their forces in such and such place. Tell the king of Israel. That's what prophecy is. Prophecy is an intercept from the mind of an all-knowing, all-seeing God. Prophecy is advanced intelligence of what's going to happen. And God doesn't give us all intelligence on all countries and all events at all times, but he does about certain events in certain countries, epicenter countries, Middle East countries, in the last days. And in this case, he's giving uh, the king of Israel such precise intelligence through Elisha Look at this, verse 11. The heart of the king of Assyria was enraged over this thing. And he called to his servants and he said to them, hey, will you tell me which one of us is for the king of Israel? That's Bible talk. For who, which one of you is the mole? Which one of you is the traitor? Which one of you is leaking classified information to our enemies? Which one of you is the Benedict Arnold? The Ahmed Arnold? You know, because this is not good. And he's ready to, Heads are ready to roll here. But one of the servants to the king of Syria says, no, 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 no. Lord, my king, it's not us, he says. But Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Well, that did not make the king of Syria that happy. He does not like this concept that he can't even whisper in his bedroom his own plans to commit genocide you know, people who want to commit genocide tend to like to keep those details to themselves. Now, they tend to like to tell everyone they're going to commit it. They just don't want you to know all the all the specifics. Well, here we have this situation where God is, of course, listening very carefully and, and communicating to Israel to warn them. So, the king of Syria shifts his attention from destroying all of Israel to destroying one man. Verse 13, so he said, go and see where he, Elisha, is. That... I may send and take him. That's Bible talk for take him out. And it was told to the king of Syria, behold, uh, Elisha's in Dothan. So the king of Syria sends horses and chariots and a great army there, and they come by night and they surround the city. Now, when Elisha's assistant, this attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out of the tent where they were staying on this mountain in, uh, in Israel, behold, what does he see? He sees an army with chariots and horses circling the city. And he's freaked out. And he comes back running into the tent and he says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? That's Bible talk for, ah! <laughs> and, he, and, and, he's, and he's, what shall we do is really euphemistic. I mean, he doesn't, he's like, we're doomed. It's geschfinkto. Our goose is cooked. There's really nothing we can do. And verse 16, what's Elijah's response. Elijah says, hey, don't fear. There are more with us than there are with them. Now, that's very sweet and nice, but the Elijah's assistant's like, what? Did you just hear what I said? Have you, have you gone out there and looked like I have? Because there's two of us, and there's a whole lot of them. I, I don't know. What, what are you smoking, Elijah, that you think there's a whole lot more of us and there are, have you seen that out there? Have you had, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? And but, So, of course, Elisha then responds, not with fear, but with prayer. And Elisha prays, O oh Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord responded because we serve a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw And what did he see? He saw a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In other words, what Elisha's assistant saw wasn't inaccurate. They did face huge odds. They were facing something that they couldn't possibly handle on their own. They were facing annihilation. Humanly speaking, what Elisha's assistant saw wasn't inaccurate, but it was incomplete he saw something that was true and real, a threat, an obstacle, a challenge of biblical proportions. But he wasn't seeing the whole thing. And the question was, Lord, Elijah said, Lord, open his eyes so he can get the fuller picture. It's not inaccurate what he's seeing, but it's incomplete. And in many ways, when we look at what's happening in the Middle East today, we see wars that just seem to go on forever. We see more than 4,000 American men and women, in service, uh, servicemen and women who have given their lives in Iraq, and we see all kinds of troubles. We see Iran building uh, this capacity for nuclear weaponry that could end up leading to, the, to, to enormous destruction. The way they talk about it, the president of Iran believes that the way to hasten the coming of the Islamic Messiah is to annihilate two countries, Israel, whom he claims is the little Satan, and the United States, whom he describes as the great Satan. And we see these countries preparing for war, and it looks horrible, and it looks grim. And even to those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who expect, as Jesus said, to look for wars and rumors of wars and nations rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. We expect that in the last days, but sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we get scared. Sometimes we feel uh, like this is grim. And we look at our political system today, and it's, it, you, know, you just had the, the whole presidential process come rolling through here just a couple weeks ago, you know how divided our country is over the future of U.S. policy in the Middle East. Why? Because it looks very bleak. But it doesn't look bleak from God's perspective. And my question, my request, my prayer today is, Lord, open our eyes that we can see. Yes, there are all kinds of humongous challenges going on in the Middle East today, but can I share with you a little bit of what God is doing in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of that carnage, in the midst of all that confusion in the Middle East, more Jews and more Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ today, at this period of time than at any other time in all of human history. In 1967, when I was born, there were only a handful, maybe a couple of dozen, three dozen followers of Jesus in Israel Jewish, Israeli followers of Jesus, maybe three dozen, like those few rows, in all of the nation of Israel. Today, there are more than 15,000 followers of Yeshua, followers of Jesus as the Messiah in Israel. When I was born, there were only three congregations of Jewish believers in Jesus in all of Israel. Three. Today, there are 150 Congregations, and there are 30, 40, 50 more home fellowship groups developing, and they will become full blown congregations in the years ahead. God is breathing life back into the Jewish people. Worldwide, in 1967, there were fewer than 2,000 Jewish believers in Jesus on the entire planet. Fewer than 2,000. Today, there are more than 300,000. Jewish believers in Jesus and the numbers are growing all the time and by the way I believe the numbers are higher most of those 300,000 are connected to what's called Messianic Jewish congregations but there are many Jewish believers in Jesus who attend regular Bible churches even jungle churches you probably have them here in Philly Calvary Philly God is doing an amazing thing my family doesn't attend a Messianic congregation we haven't that's just not been our tradition of, of, of worship When my father, who was raised an Orthodox Jew, whose family escaped out of Russia, when he became a believer in Jesus in 1973, six months after my Gentile mother became a believer, my father thought he was the first Jewish person to believe that Jesus is the Messiah since the Apostle Paul. (laughs) He thought it went Peter, James, John, Paul, 2,000 years, Len Rosenberg. (laughs) He'd never heard of a Jewish person who believed in Jesus. He'd never met a Jewish person who believed in Jesus, and there weren't that many in 1973. But today, those numbers are surging. As the Bible says, the, God is breathing life back into the Jewish people, here and in Israel, and it's unprecedented in what's happening. Now, more has to happen, but we're moving in the right direction. And Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 39, He said to the Jewish people, Behold, you will not see me again. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, until a whole lot of Jewish people come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he said, I ain't coming back again. So there. Well, I added the so there. But, you know, that's the sort of the way I read it. I don't know what the number is that checks off that box that we've got enough Jewish people who, are, who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and are excited about his return, that the Lord says, okay, now I will come back and get my church. Now, even more Jewish people come to faith after the rapture. But we're seeing that spiritual surge. We're seeing that spiritual awakening has already begun, and thank God it has. It's affected our family very directly. And it's a sign of the last days. It's a sign that Jesus is coming back. And he's not going to leave Jewish people behind because not, he's not done with us. We didn't get, our team didn't do so good the first time around. But we want to redeem ourselves on this, by God's grace the second time around and really get it this time. And by God's grace, this is happening. But it's not just Jews. Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ more than ever before. Did you know that in Iran, in 1979, when the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power and led the Islamic Revolution, there were only 500 known followers of Jesus, Shiite Muslim converts to Christianity in all of Iran, 500 in 1979. I've interviewed more than four dozen Iranian pastors and evangelical leaders over the last few years, partly for my book and film epicenter and partly for a new project that I'm working on right now. But in the conversations with all these Iranian evangelical leaders, Shiite Muslims who've come to Christ, They tell me that now they believe the numbers have gone from 500 in 1979 to more than 1 million Shiite Muslims who've come to faith in Jesus. I've interviewed for a next project that's coming up, a man who now is a pastor, and he does satellite evangelism, uh, preaching the gospel into Iran, in Farsi. But in 1979, he and his wife were on the streets of Tehran when the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power, and they were shouting, Death to America! Death to Israel! With the millions... That we're doing that as well. But then a few years later, he thought, well, not death to America quite yet. I'd like to go to graduate school. <laughs> and he and his wife came to the United States. I don't know how they got through the immigration process, but whatever. And they got lonely. And they felt far away from their families. And their marriage started having problems. And they visited a church. And somebody started showing them love and explaining to them who Jesus is and how he could heal their lives, heal their marriage, change them, adopt them into God's family. And they gave their lives to Jesus Christ. And now they're among the leading uh, evangelists into their own country, to their own people. This is how God is working. In Sudan, a country that's going through civil war, that's going through terrorism, that's going through genocide, Sudan, Sudan, Since the year 2000, more than 1 million Sudanese have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Since the early and mid-1990s, more than 5 million people in Sudan have come to faith in Jesus Christ. I was interviewing one of the top evangelical leaders in Sudan, a Sudanese himself. This is not, I mean, Western missionaries have certainly been a blessing in many places, but this is becoming an indigenous movement. God is raising up Iranians to reach Iranians. Sudanese to reach the Sudanese. Egyptians to reach Egypt, Iraqis to reach Iraq, and I met with one of the top leaders of the Sudanese evangelical movement there, and I asked him, why in the midst of genocide are so many Sudanese coming to faith in Jesus? And it's not because people are putting guns to people's heads saying, become a follower of Jesus or else. It's just the opposite. People are putting guns to people's heads and saying, if you become a follower of Jesus, we will kill you. And people are becoming believers in Jesus anyway. Why is that, I asked. And he said to me very simply, you have to understand, Joel, that people here in this country have seen what real radical Islam is and they want Jesus instead. God is moving. He's using war. He's using chaos. He's using carnage. He's using confusion to remind people, to shake people loose of their religious traditions and ask them, point blank, do you have assurance of salvation? If you die in this genocide, if you die in this civil war, if you die in this jihad, are you going to go to heaven? Are you sure of that? And Muslims can't say that. We Jews can't say that outside of Jesus. We don't know where we're going to go. Just like you don't know if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ. Do, can God is using the, the war and the, and the turmoil to ask people in the Middle East, do you have hope as an anchor for your souls? As we read about in Hebrews and more importantly have experience in our own lives. Do you have the peace that passes all understanding that Jesus and the, and the apostles speak about and that we have experienced those of us who have met Jesus and know him personally? Nobody in the Middle East has that. How could they outside of Jesus? Nobody can have that outside of Jesus. And we are in a moment where God is using all the bad news to, rem- to help people clarify the most important question. Where are you going when you die? And how are you going to live here on earth? Those are the two most important questions in human history. And Muslims and Jews, we thought we pretty much had a lock on those issues for years but God is telling us we don't, that we need Jesus, and he's coming back, and he wants to adopt us into his family. Let me give you, uh, there's more, there's so many more of these examples, and tonight I'll be getting into it a little bit more, and telling some more anecdotes, and and going wherever your questions uh, lead us, but I just had the privilege of being in Iraq um, uh, in February, Uh, a colleague who's with me today who runs a humanitarian relief organization that my wife and I started called the Joshua Fund. Uh, We're sending food and clothing and medical supplies into Israel, into the West Bank, Gaza, into Iraq, Lebanon, other places. Why? Because Jesus said to love the Jewish people for sure, but he also told his followers to love their neighbors and love their enemies. And believe me, in the Middle East, nobody's trying that strategy. Nobody. We pretty much have the "love your enemy" strategy all to yourself, all to ourselves, uh, in the Middle East. But uh, John Moser, who's the executive director of the Joshua Fund, he and I went to Iraq in February. We we met with nineteen uh, Christian pastors, Arabs, Iraqis. We met with uh, top officials in the Iraqi government, including the spokesman. Uh, for Iraqi President Jalal Talibani. We spent nine days crisscrossing through five provinces without armed guards, without armored personnel carriers, without Apache gunships. We were in a Chevy Impala for nine days. And we lived to tell about it. Things are changing in Iraq. You don't hear it much on the news, but things are getting better in Iraq. They're still hard. They're still difficult. Don't get me wrong. But we travel for nine days without security well, we had the Lord. I mean, that was, I mean, I don't, let me not minimize that. My point is, you can go around without people literally carrying machine guns. Uh, And it was an amazing time. We traveled through the province of Nineveh. Did you know that there's still a province of Nineveh? My son Jonah is very jealous, wants to go to Nineveh. Now, things have improved in Iraq, not quite ready to take my nine-year-old to Nineveh, But he wants to write a Bible study now for kids, Jonah in Nineveh, and talking about what it's like to be a child who lives for Jesus in Iraq. He wants to meet children there and interview them, and maybe he and I could write a Bible study together. And so pray for us. We may, we may actually do that in time, maybe not this year. But we were there, and uh, I want to just tell you a story. Uh, we met these amazing—I mean, any Iraqi pastor, anybody, any Iraqi citizen who's decided— to listen to God's call to become a pastor, that guy's got an interesting story. And we happened to meet 19 of them uh, all, and from all over the country. But one of them comes to mind. It was so powerful. We were going up to do a distribution, a Joshua Fund distribution of 800 backpacks to school children in the province of Nineveh. Right, actually, right on the border of Nineveh. And This is a Muslim school, Muslim students, Muslim parents, Muslim teachers, Muslim principals. But they've invited us to come and give backpacks that have school supplies, but also have the Jesus film in Arabic and Kurdish for children. Uh, a children's New Testaments in Arabic and in Kurdish. I mean, in California, you can't even homeschool your children now. In Iraq, they're inviting followers of Jesus to come into the public schools and teach their kids about Jesus. Something's going on in that country. God is moving. or to open our eyes to see what, you're, what he's doing. So we were up there, and we, we were literally driving on our way to do this distribution. And I asked this pastor, so how did you get into the ministry? How did you even come to know the Lord? He seemed like such a meek and mild person. I, you know, I thought, okay, you know, everyone has a story. But I'm curious. He said, well, I was a Sunni jihadist. I so, said, We were driving 60 miles an hour through 19 checkpoints to get there. I'm like trying to check the doors. How do I get out? Is he really a pastor? Is this a setup, you know? He used to recruit Terrorists and bring them to a terror training camp, and used to train them in rocket-propelled grenades and hand grenades and machine guns. And then he would train these jihad leaders, and his his disciples he'd then infiltrate back into the government offices so eventually he could help lead a coup when the time was right. Well, one of his disciples uh, eventually came to him one day, and he said, hey, there was this uh, Christian in my office trying to give Bibles to everybody, the New Testament to everybody. They call it the Injeel. And he said, but don't worry, I cursed at this person, and I gathered all these Bibles, and I brought them back, and I destroyed them all. And then, I, But I brought you one, because I want you to read this so you can, sh- you can explain to us how to attack the Christians and tell them that they're crazy and that they don't know what they're talking about and that their book is wrong. And so this guy said, good, good work, good work. So he grabs the Injeel and he goes home, and he opens up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 10, he's so confused. He said to me, I didn't didn't know what to do. This did not read to me like a work of fiction. This read to me like God's word, which of course went against everything that I had been teaching as a jihad leader. And he said, I didn't know what to do. Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 12. And who's he supposed to ask? I mean, he can't really pull his band of little jihadists together and go, well, let's just go through this, you know, let's get one of Pastor Chuck's books. Uh, let's, sit with, let's invite uh, Pastor Joe over and sit down. We'll just go through this verse by verse, figure out what this means. No, you can't do that when you're a jihad leader, when people are expecting you to, to kill and murder Jews and Christians. That's the whole point, right? So he's, he's struggling, and, he, and every, he can't sleep day after day. Finally, he, he cries out, and he says, Allah, are you the God of the Quran?" Or are you the God of the Bible? I have to know. <clears throat> and he said, that night he had a dream, and in that dream he was standing next to a road, and he could real, he realized that he was in a group of other people, and they they were, everyone was cheering, and he looked down the road, and he could see a a, a procession coming up the road, a, a parade essentially and, and, and these, these regal horses and these men were on these horses and as these men approached, everyone was cheering and as, he, as the first horse approached, the first man he noticed was one of the prophets. It was Abraham and everyone shouting, Abraham, Father Abraham and they were all excited about this and then the next prophet and the next prophet, all biblical prophets which the, the Quran also affirms as, as prophets but he kept expecting Muhammad. Muhammad never showed and the last person to come along was in a white shroud with a, with, a, with a shroud over his eyes and face, and he was riding on a donkey. And this man said to me, Joel, I had not yet read deep enough into Matthew to know the biblical significance of somebody riding on a donkey, but I just heard myself in my dream shouting out, Are you Jesus? Are you Esau? And the man pulled back his shroud and nodded and smiled. And he said, Suddenly I felt so filled with, with peace and with hope, and I, it's just like my body filled with, with, with this, this sense that this was Jesus, and Muhammad was not there, and that Jesus was answering my prayer, that he was the God of the Bible. He said he woke up laughing with such joy that God would be so gracious to reveal the truth to him, but then he realized that his pillow and his sheets were soaked with tears. He'd been crying, apparently, in his dream, he said, in repentance for the life he'd been living. And the lies he'd been teaching. And now he gave his life to Jesus. And that was the last jihad for him. He left that cell, and and now he's a pastor, an evangelist, and a church planner in Iraq. And I said, and after he told us a story and we spent the day with him, I said, you know what? I've got a film crew with me. Could I film this story? Could you tell me this story on camera tomorrow night? We'll we'll make your we'll put your face in shadow. We will change your, your disguise, your voice. We don't want you to be harmed, but we want people to hear the story, and he agreed to that. And after he told me the story on camera, and the crew began breaking down the equipment, I said, "He said to me, Joel, you are very lucky." And I said, I, "Well, I think that's true. Why do you say that?" And he said, "Because if I had met you in 1993, I would have killed you instantly. But now you're my brother in Jesus. Give me a hug, you know. Whoo, you know. It's like, oh, brother." This is the God that we serve. Lord, open our eyes. Yes, there's terrible things going on in the Middle East. This should no no longer be a shock to us, and it's going to get worse in time. Yeah, there may be a season where we see dramatic breakouts of peace. That's possible. But the Bible talks about things eventually getting worse and worse and worse in the Middle East. Why would God allow that? In part, he does that to shake people loose from tradition, from religion, from any lie, from any deception that keeps people away from a personal relationship with Jesus. And I want to close with this thought. In a moment, I'm going to ask Pastor Joe to come up and, and, and close us in prayer, but I want to leave you with this thought. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if that's how you would describe yourself this morning, if you look at what the Bible says will happen in the last days, wars, rumors of wars, persecution, earthquakes, global uh, food shortages, famines, uh, uh, the spread of the gospel, the rebirth of Israel, when you look at the list of what God says will happen in the last days, when you look at what is happening in the last days or what's happening right now, I ask you, if you're, if you're planning any major sins in your life right now, could I encourage you to postpone those? <laughs> Maybe even just cancel them outright. This is not a good time to be goofing around. This is not a good time to be doing something, watching something, reading something, listening to something, spending time with someone or something for which you would be ashamed when Jesus comes back for you. This is a time for repentance. This is a time for asking God, Lord, have mercy on me. Turn me around. Get me back on the path to walking with you. Because can I tell you Jesus is coming back today? I can't. Can I tell you that Jesus is coming back this week or next? I can't tell you that. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But would I be shocked if Jesus comes back a lot sooner than most of us think? I would not be. And I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and have him say to me, Joel, I'm really glad that that whole thing with the novels worked out. That's really, that's nice. But what part of Matthew 28, go, the Great Commission, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. What part of that did you not understand, son? What part of Matthew 25? Did you feed the poor? Did you clothe the naked? Did you care for the suffering? What part of those things in the scriptures that I commanded you, Joel, what part of that did you not understand? I mean, was it in Greek? Well, okay, actually it was, but you know, you had all those translations. I don't want to be ashamed of Jesus, or of myself, when Jesus comes for me. I don't want my wife to be ashamed of herself or my boys. And I don't think you do either. But I would close on this point if... There are those of you this morning who, in your heart, you say, you know what, I don't know if I've ever made that decision to receive Jesus. This is the moment. This is the moment to give your life to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And those of you that are ready to give your life to Jesus, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. This is the moment to give your life to Jesus Christ. Anyone else, this is the moment— You've got to do a few things. You've got to believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, that you're a sinner, but that he's there to get you, to save you, to rescue you. You've got to believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. You've got to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead on that third day to prove to us that he is the only way to heaven. That when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that he was telling the truth. And you got to be ready to accept him in your heart. Anyone else? Thank you for those who've raised your hands. Anyone else? I'm just going to give you a few more moments. Don't leave this place this morning. I implore you, in light of this information, without giving your life to Jesus Christ. Thank you. Anyone else? This is the moment. Some of you have been coming to this church for a while. It's a wonderful church. But you know in your heart that you haven't given your life to the Lord. Great. Anyone else? Am I trying to frighten you? A little bit. Because I'm frightened about the idea of seeing Jesus without having assurance of salvation. Amen. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And then I'm going to pass Pastor Joe, up. Actually, why don't you come up now? And let's pray. Okay, here we go. Father, thank you for this morning. And Lord, I just want to lead these folks in prayer. And you can just pray with me uh, phrase by phrase. Dear Father, I need you. I need you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you you for having a plan for my life. I admit to you this morning that I'm a sinner, that I've been going my own way, doing my own thing, and I want to change. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross to pay for my sins. And thank you for raising Jesus from the dead as proof that he's the only way to get to you. Thank you for opening my eyes to the fact that you love me and that you want to adopt me into your family Lord, teach me how to walk with you. Teach me how to follow you. Thank you for coming into my life and making me a new person. I love you, Lord. And I will follow you forever as you give me the strength, the courage, and the wisdom to do so. I thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Joel Rosenberg. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Joel's ministry by visiting joelrosenberg.com.